Titi Upadana. Aditi is an interesting thing. The word comes from the verb to see, and Aditi is a view, pretty much. In uh, the Pali language, the emphasis of the term is on the act of viewing. It is something we do. Yeah, please. Can you just say it really clearly? Dikti Upadana. Thank you. Or Dikti Upadana, technically. Um, coming from the word grasping, Upadana, the word Dikti for view. View, I understand in English to mean, has a more objective quality to it than it has in Pali. In Pali, the, um, a view is acknowledged to be an act. This is something we do. It is not a piece of objective reality we meet. It is a, a view is something we have taken. So the acknowledgement that we create views, that we generate views, that views are based on perceptions and uh, other cognitive processes is, is more overtly acknowledged in Pali than I think the English word view conveys. The ditti of ditti upadana, if we want to look for that in today's language, goes by many names. It goes by the name of theory, opinion, take, ideology. Um, it goes by It covers everything from the darkest superstition to the most uh, elevated, mysterical intuition you may hold. It speaks of a pre-configuration of our approach to something. Some of these views, they come about through reflection. Some of them come about through what we have learned from others. Some of it comes from what we have inferred as in hypothesis, some of it is simply due to our lack of proper investigation. I, my understanding is that you know we we overemphasize the views that we have espoused as as conscious ideologies. Obviously, there are many such views and people attached to those views. You know, they, they go communist or they go violently anti-communist. They go collectivist or they go individualist. Or, you know, there's many such views people have espoused historically and generally defended. And um, there has been a fair amount of bloodbath in the names of various ideologies. But the majority of the views I believe we suffer under are not views we have actually consciously adopted. The majority of views we seem to suffer under and clandestinely attached to are views we have basically taken up with mother's milk. Yeah. It's the views of our subculture, it's the views of our families, it's the views of our particular, uh, you know, the area we've grown up in, and views we have never consciously acknowledged as views. Most of these views, 
you only need to when you meet other people who don't share those views. And then you, you experience some kind of shock. It's like there are views that sit under the surface of the water like a reef. And you only know that it's there when you hit it. When your boat, kind of sailing across happily, suddenly hits the rock underneath the surface. And then you notice you've hit a view. And usually there is some irrational response. or It is the irrational response that makes us often aware of the grasping at such a view. Because in the degree of irrational uh, in the degree of the irrationality of our response to somebody not holding what we expect to be just common sense, just normal, the reasonable thing to do, or just being a normal human being, what we come across then is some a, a fruit of our grasping. We get shocked, we get annoyed, we feel disturbed by we feel that something we have invested in, maybe quietly, without ever acknowledging to ourselves that this has happened, we've invested in, in a particular take on reality, and suddenly we find um, this is not shared by some of our fellow human beings. The Buddha makes a distinction between what he calls right views and wrong views, which the commentaries then go about telling us that basically attachment to wrong views is a problem. And then they list all the wrong views, generally of other spiritual practitioners at the, at the time of the Buddha, as you can uh, surmise. Implicit is, you know, we have the right views, they have the wrong views. Attachment to views basically is the problem with people who attach to wrong views. <laughs> Which uh, I have a suspicion is not what the Buddha meant. I've named a couple of views he felt particularly pernicious: uh, the, the denial of causality, the denial of the fruit of ethical living, the denial of a dependency on parents, for example, the denials of the denial of the possibility of liberation. Uh, such things he felt uh, is particularly pernicious because it stultifies our uh, motivation to undertake spiritual practices and grow. Unfortunately, also right views can be attached to and have bring about suffering. If you have the choice between a right view and a wrong view, by all means, uh, attach to the right view. <laughs> if you have the choice to uh, hold the right view or attach to a right view, do just simply hold it rather than attach to it. So, it's a graduation. Consider views as a, it's a natural tendency of the mind to understand things in terms of a story. This is a, the nature of mind. We are interested in the narrative of something. Yes, we want to taste the strawberry, but then we want a story. Where does it come from? How much does it cost? Is it organic? Who do, how do they look like? Who plant the stuff? Was it originally grown there, or was it important? Uh, can I get it next year? Is this, you know, this kind of thing. We want a story. What, what can I do with it? Does it taste as good as the one I have last tasted? With whom have I sat last? And 
eight in one of them, you know, we want a story. We're not content with simply enjoying our senses, as we might think of the first type of grasping. We actually want a story. This storytelling mind has its origin in, um, well, later Buddhist teaching speaks of the awakening nature of mind. There is something in us that wants to grow up, that is intrinsically curious and wants to learn. It's very difficult to keep human beings stupid. You know? Many attempts have been made, uh, interim, remarkably successful attempts, but on the long run, basically human beings want to learn. And it's very difficult to keep us stupid. We are very curious, we're inquisitive, and we start adding up things. If it hurts long enough, and if we live with something long enough, we begin to figure things out. Maybe not as quick as we would like, but we definitely have a tendency of learning. And learning is a process which makes things suddenly irreversible. There is a point when our learning brings us to uh, a moment that we can no longer pretend of not knowing. We can no longer pretend innocence on account if we have learned <clears throat> enough. We can no longer pretend that it's not happening or that we don't know. So the mind that wants a story, that looks for meaning, that tries to figure out connections, is basically the very same mind that wants to wake up. The storytelling mind, which you get in your meditation efforts, you know, which is called uh, discursive thinking and is rated as a distraction, is nothing else but the degenerative form of that very same mind that is geared to awakening. So, meaning is precious to us. We seek for meaning. We not just seek actual experiences, we seek also to connect the dots. We seek to create a meaning out of the experiences we have. Pleasant ones or unpleasant ones. We, create, we try to create meaning. This is very, very deep-seated trait in our mind. So, part of that <clears throat> leads us to understanding, degrees of understanding. And things we have understood, or we believe to have understood, we invest in. We like to convince others of it. We like to be seen as having understood this. If it has helped us, we wish that others also benefit from it. If we think we have found crucial piece of meaning in a particular experience, we'd like to share that. There's nothing bad in that. The problem is, if we meet people who don't share that, that's where the grasping becomes manifest. Do we just get evangelical? Or do we actively pursue uh, these people being locked up or declared mad or put in prison or somewhere? Do we try to overtly convince them? How violent are we prepared to uh, be in our efforts to convince other people of our, of our rightness? The security and the kick we get out of Dityu Padana is this about being right and about being competent. It is the sense that I know what's happening and I'm in charge. And this is a great 
greatly attractive thing in a world in which we all too well know that we're not in charge. <coughs> in a world in which we can very easily prove to ourselves that we are actually not having a clue. There's so many more things that we don't understand than we do understand. I don't even know how a, a light bulb works, to be honest with you. You know, I can, I can spew up the sort of stuff I've learned in my physics classes, alternating currents, carbon thread, this kind of thing, but I don't really twig how it works. Really deep down, I don't. And um, with things that are more complicated than a light bulb, it gets worse. I don't really know how my metabolism works. I have some experiential understanding of it after over 50 years, but basically I don't know how it works. I don't know how enzymes really work. So, wherever I turn, I am surrounded by a complexity I don't truly understand. I fiddle with machines, I press buttons, I pull levers, I move through spaces, I entrust my life to metal tubes that fly me over the Atlantic, but basically, I have no clue how this all works. And I would suspect it's similar to you. It's similar for you. We, we are engulfed in complexities that we cannot handle. Very, very few people in, every, in, in any specific field really know how something works. I sometimes think that this was different. 300 years ago, 250 years ago, you know, a guy like <coughs> Goethe, who was a very gifted writer but also a gifted natural scientist, he was surrounded by tools he could understand. You know, he knew how a petroleum lantern operated. He knew how, uh, you know, what do you call these things? Compass? Compass operates. But this is different for us now. So we have views, and these views are based on perceptions, and these perceptions are based upon uh, how we make sense of the world and what preconceptions we have framed what we currently experience. And a lot of that is fluid. Much of what I have adopted as a view doesn't really hold, or it holds for a particular time, but then it becomes obsolete, and then a little later it becomes positively wrong. At some point, I should have changed that view, but I haven't. And I end up with believing something that isn't true, or operating by a premise that is outdated at best. It has worked when I was three years old, but somehow it doesn't do the same job anymore. Our attachment to views creates an apparent certainty, because in a world that changes, being competent, being right, and being in the know creates a psychological sense of safety. The kick is the psychological sense of safety. Most of the views we hold do not actually have to be accurate. We don't actually put them to test. We just surf on the psychological kick of feeling good about ourselves because we believe to know something. That's my firm belief. That is my firm view on, on the reason of the nature of views. I'm willing to have that tested, uh, but I probably won't let go of that one before I have had some convincing other 
theory about the nature of views. Human, you don't need to be an intellectual to invest in views and to attach to views. Uh, some of them, some of the most adamant views I have encountered amongst people who by no standards or by any standards couldn't be called intellectuals. Yeah. So just because you don't have a university degree uh, or don't have the degree you wish you had, you, uh, that doesn't exempt you from holding views. Some views are quite difficult to uproot. I remember I lived in Thailand for a number of years, and uh, in certain area, areas you still have malaria there. And, um, Thailand is a very good medical, uh, you know, they've got polyclinics, and they've got excellent doctors, they've got fabulously big hospitals, they've got a number of American private clinics and so forth. Um, there's plenty of medical excellence in that country, but there's still a number of people who adamantly believe that malaria comes from bad water. It's very clear where malaria comes from. It's a, it's a parasite. It is transported by the, femalis, by the female of a particular mosquito called anopheles, and she injects uh, a substance into your body when trying to take your blood so that the blood runs more smoothly and that you don't feel that she's there and she has uh, been peeking you, uh, she injects something and in that inject there is the parasite that causes malaria. This is very well known. But there are still plenty of people who believe that malaria comes from bad water, which is not true, evidently not true. It would be very easy to disprove that. but. To disprove it, you need to make some sort of effort. And that effort, many people shy away from. It's easier to hold on to a wrong view than to make the effort to actually figure out what is a more accurate view. You may still end up with another view, which is not entirely true, but it may be A, disprove your current view, and B, be more accurate, at least for some time. Yes, please. Particularly when uh, mosquitoes breed in bad water. <laughs> yeah, it's obvious that one can construe connections, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the mosquito doesn't just need bad water. Yeah, <coughs> yeah. <clears throat> needs also infected people. It needs a carrier animal. And it needs a certain um, what's the word distance to the potential victim of the malaria parasite. So views are convenient, not because they're accurate, but because they give us a sense of certainty. And views have many names, myths, theories, ideologies, um, the current state of, you know, the, the leading edge of our natural sciences has the current view that, you know, uh, the mind is in the brain or the brain is in the mind or that this or that illness is hereditary or is conditioned by socialization or, you know, if you look, views change quite dramatically in many fields. And yet we keep having a lot of confidence in views, how to rear children, how to educate people, where to spend our money on, uh, 
what programs, which sort of people, what needs, what's the biggest danger. And if you look back a few years, it, it is quite hilarious to see what people have, who policymakers have believed 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. So views are very evident in, in all our lives. So the Buddha suggests that we make distinctions. It's unlikely that we give up trying to make a good story out of what we experience. But it is useful to find a way to end up with a story that gives us a chance to grow. Yeah? So the Buddha suggests that we adopt views that are of such a nature that we grow more easily, rather than stories in which we have no chance of growing, stories which always end bad, and stories in which we are powerless. So how would it look, or better, how has it looked when you last found out about views, when you met your own views, when you met the views of others, which you felt you just touch into a belief system there. You try to be with somebody, to talk with somebody, to come to terms with somebody, and you just meet a belief system. I'd like you to take five minutes, sit together with three of you, preferably not the same three you spoke this morning with, and discuss this. How do you encounter views and grasping to views in your own life and in the lives of the people with whom you are? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.